Welcome to the Landmark Podcast. I'm Jason Calhoun, pastor of Landmark Pentecostal Church in Texarkana, Texas. We encourage you to visit us on the web at landmarkupc.net for a schedule of services and upcoming events. We pray that you are blessed by the message today. Thank you again for listening. This morning, and I'm going to let you remain seated because I'm not going to read a text for just a few minutes here. But uh, I want to talk to you this morning about breaking the law. I'm not going to ask if anybody has any experience with that. I'll just leave that between you and your pastor. Amen. But uh, we don't normally encourage people to break the law. Not usually. Uh, normally, it's a good idea. To, uh, to know the law and, and, and respect it. Uh, there are some laws that deal with uh, physics. For example, it's a proven fact that if, uh, if you exceed the posted speed limit, then that action is likely to produce red and blue lights. It just uh, it works that way. Uh, I had an uncle who was a, uh, a deputy sheriff in Arkansas and and Texas as well, and uh, uh, he helped uh, put a lot of folks behind bars uh, because they broke the law. That's not what I'm going to be talking to you about this morning. I, I, I'm not going to encourage you to break any of the laws of the land. But there are some laws this morning that I believe were designed to be challenged, and I'm going to invite you to challenge those laws with me. We're going to look at three laws today. It always worries me when a preacher names a number of things he's going to talk about because if he gets a good ways into it and he's still on number one, it makes me question my lunch. But I'm going to try not to do that to you this morning, amen, and uh, I guess if uh, things get out of hand, we'll just bail out before we get all the way down the list. But my, my, my plan is to talk to you about three laws this morning. The first law is called the Law of Diminishing Returns. And uh, that's a law that uh, you'll encounter both in the study of economics, and you'll also encounter that uh, if you work with uh, uh, folks who have problems with addictions and chemical dependencies. Both of those fields are acquainted with what's called the law of diminishing returns. Let me read it for you. Now, there will be a test at the end of this. So, uh, no, there won't be a test. Uh, the test is the altar call, all right? Amen. But, uh, but you might want to just uh, uh, listen to this and see if it makes a whole lot of sense to you. Because then I'm going to give you the layman's version of it afterwards, which is what I understand. The law of diminishing returns in economics says that the tendency, or it is the tendency for a continuing application of effort or skill toward a particular project or goal to decline in effectiveness after a certain level of result has been achieved. You get that? All right, let me give you the layman's version. The law of diminishing returns. After a while, adding more effort stops making things better. That's what that law says. There comes a point where no matter how hard you work, you don't make things any better. That's one law. The second law is the law, and it's called the second law. It's not just my second law. It is the second law of thermodynamics. Anybody heard of that? I'm sure you have. Probably in school. I'm not going to ask you if you remember what you studied about it. It's when you're your teacher. But uh, it's a law of physics. 
the second law of thermodynamics. And it says, uh, the second law of thermodynamics says that energy of all kinds in our material world disperses or spreads out if it's not hindered from doing so. Got it? All right, now here's the layman's version. Over time, all things cool off, wind down, or lose power. That's in terms that I can understand. And then the third law is Newton's law of gravity. Even if you've never studied that law, you're familiar with it. If you've ever taken a tumble and skinned up your knee, if you've ever had something fall on your head, uh, then you understand Newton's law of gravity. Amen. It seems like the older we get, the more painfully aware we become of Newton's law of gravity. Amen. Uh, the, the world just pulls you down so many ways. So... Uh, Newton's law of gravity is that every particle of matter in the universe attracts every other particle. Now, you might want to write down this formula here just so you'll never forget it, but don't worry about it. You won't need it. Every particle of matter in the universe attracts every other particle with a force that is directly proportional to the product of the masses of the particles and inversely proportional to the square of the distance between them. Nobody shouted. Let me give you the layman's version of that. That which goes up must come down. Amen. I like the abbreviated versions. I wish they always tested on the layman's version in school versus the other. But I'm going to talk to you for just a few minutes today with the help of the Lord about these three laws and why they need to be broken. Number one, let's return to the law of diminishing returns. Uh, under uh, this law, as I've mentioned to you, People who uh, invest in business, people who manage businesses, uh, they understand that uh, you can only throw so much money at a problem before the money start, uh, stops making a difference. Money doesn't fix everything. You can only throw so much effort and so much labor and so much time at a problem. And after a while, you reach a point where throwing more money, time, labor, and effort at that problem ceases to make the situation better. And at that point, you generally consider that project dead and you move on to the next one. In the world of chemical addiction, the reason people become addicted to drugs, alcohol, and other harmful substances is because they try it one time and it gives them a thrill like nothing they've ever had before. And so they want to experience that thrill again. And they go back and they do the same thing they did to get the thrill the first time. But it doesn't work quite as well the second time. That's called the law of diminishing returns. It doesn't give you the second time what it gave you the first time. And so you have to go out and try to get more of it. And the third time around, it takes a little more than it did the second time around because of the law of diminishing returns. And so you see people whose lives are destroyed. You see these individuals on the street corners holding a sign, we'll work for food even though they won't. Why are they there? They appear to be, many of them, young, able-bodied individuals. They're there because the law of diminishing returns has taken over their future and has taken over their reality. 
They're no longer able to hold a job. They're no longer able to support a family because they've gotten themselves into a habit that demands more and more and more and more and more every time. And there are so many things in life and so many things in this world that follow that pattern. They start out and they seem to be innocent, but they demand more every time. Every time you want to reach that level of euphoria, every time you want to reach that level of happiness and satisfaction, it takes a little more from you. It never gives back, but it always asks for more. It always demands more and more until you find yourself a servant, a slave if you please, to that habit. That's the law of diminishing returns well the enemy would like you to believe that that's the way it is with God the enemy would like you to believe that what you felt that first time in the house of God when you walked in and the Holy Ghost was moving and and you felt something you'd never felt before maybe goosebumps came up on your arms you said I've never felt anything like this you saw people crying you saw people dancing and jumping up and down and shouting and it was beautiful and maybe scary at the same time because you didn't understand what was happening but you looked around you saw peace you saw joy you saw happiness you you said, I want what these people have. The devil would like you to believe that was a one-time experience. He'd like you to believe that can never happen to you again. It was just a freak of nature. But let me tell you something. The scripture says God is not bound by the law of diminishing returns. Your experience with God, your seeking God, is not subject to the demands of a law of diminishing returns that says it can never be as good as it was the first time. Amen. Whether the scripture says, draw nigh to God and he will draw nigh to you. There is no limitation placed there. There's no expiration date on that. There's no caveat that it's not going to work as well the second time or the third time. The scripture says, I am the Lord. I change not. Jesus Christ, the same yesterday, today, and forever. Let me tell you something, my friend. If you came to the house of the Lord this morning and you're wondering if there's still hope for you, you're wondering if anybody still gets what your grandma had, what your mama had years ago, that you remember let me tell you it's in the house this morning it's just as real as it was for her it's just as real as you remember from your childhood and if you'll reach out to God this morning he'll make himself very real to you the gospel hasn't lost any power the message hasn't lost any power the Holy Ghost hasn't gotten any weaker the blood hasn't lost any power amen there's still deliverance in the house of the Lord Hebrews 11.6 says, But without faith it is impossible to please him, for he that cometh to God must believe. That's the requirement. You must believe. If you can believe that he's here, he is here. If you can believe that he still delivers, he will still deliver. If you can believe that he still heals, there's a God who still heals this morning. And he is a rewarder. A 
of them that diligently seek him. Every time you come to him, you're going to find him. Every time you reach out to him, he's going to be there. You can come into the house of the Lord on a Sunday morning after a long, hard week, and your spirit may be dragging the ground. You may be tired and discouraged and not feeling well, but let me make you a guarantee this morning. When you walk into the house of God, if you get those hands up in the air, whether you feel like it or not, if you lift your voice when the worship begins, if you unite your heart with the hearts of the worshipers, God's presence will visit you. He is a rewarder of them that diligently seek him. That's why in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 58, it says, Therefore, my beloved brethren, be ye steadfast, unmovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, for as much as ye know, there's no doubt about it, that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. My God is not subject to the law of diminishing returns. You'll never get less from him than he promised. You'll never get less from him than you expected. He will never disappoint. I don't care how long you've been serving him. I don't care if this is your 50th year, your 60th year, your 70th year, your 80th year to come into the house of God seeking his presence. Every time you come, he will be here. Every time you call on him, he will hear you. He will answer you. He is the Lord. He changes not. Maybe everything else you've ever tried has failed you and you came this morning thinking, well, this is probably not going to work either. I got news for you. This is the place where laws are broken. The second law of thermodynamics is that energy of all kinds in our material world disperses or spreads out if it's not hindered from doing so. In other words, over time all things cool off, wind down, or lose power. That's why if you have a battery... And you take that battery and you, you never open the package. You just set it on the shelf. Let it sit there for a few years and chances are when you finally open the battery, it's going to be dead. You didn't do anything with it. You didn't use it. But the second law of thermodynamics says it's just going to die all by itself. If you build a house, this is what's so comical about the... Uh, the pseudoscience called evolution. I call it pseudoscience because it's the worst junk science you ever studied. It follows none of the rules of science. But that's a whole other subject for a whole other day. But this pseudoscience called evolution says that nothing started all of this, which is kind of odd, and that what came from that nothing... It's getting better all by itself. And that out of this uh, primordial soup, I like soup, but I don't think I'd care for that. 
Out of this primordial soup there emerged single-cell life. And that single-cell life with no guiding intelligence became complex creatures like ourselves and like the animal kingdom that defies every law of nature and every law of science that exists. And it particularly defies the second law of thermodynamics that says things don't get better by themselves. They're always going to get worse if left alone. Go ahead and build you a house. Build you a beautiful home. Clear you an acre or two out in the piney woods. And build you the mansion of your dreams. Finish it out just right. And then walk away from it and come back in five years. And see what it looks like left to its own devices. First of all, your clearing is going to be grown up. And secondly, the house is going to be falling apart because things don't get better by themselves. You're going to find shutters hanging off of the house. You're going to find shingles missing from the roof. You're going to find doors that are sagging on their hinges and windows that are broken out and all sorts of signs of disrepair because the law of the second law of thermodynamics says if you leave something to itself, it's just going to deteriorate. It's going to get worse. There is a myth that has been perpetuated. And that myth is that the church is cooling off. And the church is falling into disrepair. The world and the spirit of the world would like us to believe that we're trying to hang on to a dying entity. That we're trying to give CPR to something that's just barely hanging on by a thread. The devil would like you to get that in your mind, my friend. Saint of God, you have been faithful to God all of your life. The devil would like you to start believing that now, at the end of your journey, you're part of something that's getting ready to go away. There are things that are subject to the second law of thermodynamics, but let me break the news to you, my friend. The church is not one of those things. The church is not bound by a mandate to deteriorate. The church is not sick, and the church is not weak, and the church is not going anywhere until the trumpet sounds, and then we're all going somewhere. So we read in Genesis chapter 49 where Jacob is blessing his sons right before he dies. And he's addressing Joseph. And he says this. He says, the blessings of thy father have prevailed above the blessings of my progenitors unto the utmost bound of the everlasting hills. That probably didn't mean a lot to you. That's a lot of old English. It's a lot of big words to try to figure out what exactly was he talking about. So, so, so forgive me if I, if I read to you from another translation just to give you a little glimmer of insight to what he was saying. This translation says, The blessings of thy father, this is Jacob speaking to Joseph, talking about himself, the blessings of thy father have prevailed above the blessings of my progenitors. Or, in this version, the blessings of your father are mighty beyond the blessings of my parents. You need to let that sink in for just a moment. You see, he's a third generation servant of God. 
His daddy is Isaac. His grandpa is Abraham. Abraham is known in the scripture as the friend of God. Isaac is a man who was wealthy and blessed of God. He was a a divine promise to his parents. Both Abraham and Isaac were men who were known for their walk with God, for their relationship with God, for the blessings of God in their lives. How could you possibly top Abraham, the friend of God? How could you possibly top Isaac, to whom God gave all the territory of his father and great riches and wealth? And yet Jacob, the third generation, when he's on his deathbed getting ready to pass the mantle along to the next generation, he says, son, let me tell you something. The blessings of God... God on your daddy. The blessings of God on this third generation believer are mighty far beyond anything God ever gave to my daddy or my grandpa. I want to challenge the notion that that we're obligated, that we're required to lose our young people. I want to challenge the notion that we're required to see the church deteriorate as time goes by. Yes, there are people who are backsliding, but friend, there have always been people who are backsliding. Yes, there are people who don't love the message, but there's always been somebody that didn't love the message. Don't be looking at the ones who don't love it. Don't worry about the ones who are getting off the bus there's still plenty who are staying on the bus all the way to his destination and I've got a hope today that God is raising up a generation of young people it did my heart good to see these children up here singing today. You know why? They're not the church of tomorrow. They're not the church of somewhere down the road. This experience belongs to them right now. Every bit of it. They're part of this church. They are the church. Your relationship with God doesn't have to cool off just because you've been serving Him for a while. Biggest prayer back home. I know it doesn't happen here, but back home, my biggest prayer is God, our new converts, don't let them learn from our old converts. Don't let them learn how to worship like us. Don't let them learn how to serve you like us because we go around half the time acting like we're worn out. You don't have to cool off just because you've been around this thing for a while. We've all seen folks pray through. They come in out of life of drugs and alcohol. The devil had them all tied up, and they get the Holy Ghost. They find out what deliverance is all about. They find out what real happiness and joy is. They're so excited. They want to tell the whole world. They want to run around the church every time there's a church service. And we sit back and say, oh, give them a little time. They'll cool off. And they'll be just like us. It doesn't have to be that way. We don't have to wind this clock up when we first get the Holy Ghost and then sit back and watch it wind down. It doesn't have to be that way. Some of you didn't understand that because you never wound a clock in your life. But some of us older folks, we under, we get that. Amen. you got to wind that clock up and then it starts winding. And, and, and if you ever let the alarm go off on an old wind-up clock, you remember that? It starts out really loud and then it starts going... That's just like some of our Holy Ghost. 
We got it. We just can't remember where we put it. I don't care if you've been serving him for 200 years. He's still good. He's still faithful. His word is still right. You may have to make your way down the aisle on a little walker and just barely make it there. Friend, he's still going to meet you there when you get there like he did when you could run down the aisle. Nothing's changed on his side. If you lift your voice, if you lift your hands, if you shout to him, the Holy Ghost will still move. Daniel is looking ahead in prophecy at the end times, and he sees end time believers. Now, mind you, we've been told that there's barely going to be anybody in the end serving God. How many times have you heard that? There's just going to be a few. But when Daniel looks ahead at the end of days, he says this, The people that do know their God shall be strong and do exploits. Exploits are mighty things. Exploits are newsworthy things. He said there's going to be somebody in in the end time that knows God. And that somebody that knows God is still going to be full of the power. Just like everybody was in the generations before. And they're going to be doing mighty things in the Holy Ghost in the end time. So I want to ask you a question. Have you settled in to just hang on until it's over? Try not to get bucked off the horse or shaken off the... Is that what you're doing? You're just trying to hang on to the church? Just trying to stay saved? I want to shake you up this morning in the Holy Ghost. God didn't call you to hang on. God didn't call you to barely make it. God didn't call you to be a survivor. God called you to be an overcomer. God called you to be one of those who are knowing God and doing mighty things and doing exploits in the end time. Yes, I know we got a world that's tied up in fear from the coronavirus. God has not given us a spirit of fear, but of love and of power and of a sound mind. And when the world's afraid and the world shook up, there's no better time to get out your home Bible study chart. Go sit down in somebody's living room and say, let me show you how not to be afraid. Let me show you how to get rid of fear in your life. Oh, thank God. Now, we don't just keep our power just because we're us. We don't just keep our power because of the name over the door or on the sign out by the street, that's, that's not what gives us the ability to, to maintain the power of this experience and not lose it over time. What, what defies the second law of thermodynamics is surprising. A lot of folks would have you believe that to have true freedom, you have to have all limitations and boundaries taken away or you're not really free. No rules, no regulations, no nothing. That's true freedom. It may be true freedom, although it's not, but it's powerless. The thing that enables 
anything to defy the second law of thermodynamics is boundaries. For example, how many of you came to church this morning in a vehicle of some sort? Raise your hand. Some sort, all right. Wasn't, wasn't a horse-drawn wagon? Or you had a car or you had a van or you came on a bus or something of the sort, right? All right, now, <clears throat> I don't want to make anybody nervous. Did you come on the freeway? Raise your hand if you came on the freeway. All right, most of you didn't have to get on the freeway. But so, so you still came down a side street. You probably were driving about 35 miles an hour if you were behaving. I'm not going to ask you to tell me what you were really driving. I'm just going to go with 35, all right? So uh, you do realize that you were sitting only about two feet, maybe three feet off the ground when you were moving at that speed. Anybody, any of you ever have a bicycle crash when you were a kid? I remember one. I still have a rock buried in my arm. Uh, I've had it there for right around 40 years. And uh, it reminds me of the day that I was not paying attention. I was riding a, a 10-speed road bike, and, and I was just looking down, riding just as fast as I could, looking straight down. I didn't see the rock that the kids had left in the street when they were playing soccer earlier and needed a, a goalpost. And so uh, I hit that rock and, and uh, went end over end and landed under the bicycle and skidded for longer than I care to remember. And there was a lot less of me when I got up. We'll just put it that way. Uh, like a cheese grater. Uh, so that was just riding a bicycle. Now you imagine if you're going along 35 miles an hour or if you're on the interstate at 65 or 70 miles an hour and something happened, and that barrier between you and the pavement was gone, and now you found yourself skidding along the pavement at 70 miles an hour. That would hurt. So why doesn't that happen every time you get in your vehicle? Why is it that you're okay with going and hopping in that metal enclosure and getting on the freeway and speeding up till you hit 70 or more? And you don't worry about it. You don't worry about personal injury. You don't worry about the cheese grater effect. You're just sailing along confidently. Why? Because you have faith in your tires. Did you ever consider this only air that's holding you up? That's what's in those tires. Now, there's a lot of air in this place today. But I guarantee you that if I were to jump Right now, and stick my legs straight out, I would fall harder than I care to think about, and it would hurt. The air would not do anything for me. So how is it that the air in your car tires keeps you from serious bodily harm, but all the air that's in this place right now wouldn't stop me from breaking a bone if I tried to jump and fall? It's called boundaries. You see, your car tires are designed with sidewalls. And the sidewalls of those tires, and those tires, of course, will mold and bond to the, to the rim, and they form an airtight seal, and that air can't go anywhere. And so the air is forced into a space that is limited by boundaries. It is the boundaries that give the air its power. 
When you take that air that wouldn't do anything for anybody when it was loose and had no restrictions and you force it into an area that has boundaries, it gains power. This is not the time for you to be looking for a church that's letting down on its boundaries. This is not a time for you to be looking for a gospel that requires less and less and less of you. That's not true liberty, and it doesn't give true power. But where you have a church that respects the laws of God and respects the boundaries of the Word of God and the Holy Ghost, the wind of the Holy Ghost is moving in that place inside the boundaries established by the Word of God. There is safety and there is power. And you ought to be praying for your pastor every day, saying, God, give him strength. Give him backbone. Give him anointing. Give him courage. Don't let him back down an inch on what he preaches and what he believes. Why? Because it's those boundaries that give you power. And that's why we're not subject to the second law of thermodynamics, that everything is going to deteriorate. Wind down, disperse, cool off. Why? Because we respect the boundaries of God's word. And that gives us power. There's a man in the Bible by the name of Jabez. You've probably read about him. You read through uh, the book of Chronicles. It's actually one book we've divided in two parts for convenience sake. You find where... There's a genealogy given. So-and-so begat so-and-so, and so-and-so begat so-and-so, and so-and-so begat so-and-so. It's a good place to take a nap during your Bible reading. But I don't recommend it because you might miss something important. Even in the, quote-unquote, boring parts of the Bible, and there are boring parts of the Bible. You say, but next, how can you say that? The Bible wasn't given for our entertainment. It was given for our salvation. God didn't feel obligated to entertain us with everything he wrote or, or, or gave. He just put it there because we needed it. So you need to read the boring parts just like you need to read the exciting parts. Amen. And it can get kind of boring when you're going through a list of names you can't pronounce. And you don't know who this is and you're wondering why do I need to know who his daddy was. I didn't know him either. And you're going down through this list, and all of a sudden you come to one guy who doesn't have a daddy in that list. And you wonder, how did he make it in here? This is a list of who is whose daddy. And it comes to Jabez, and there's no daddy there. And if you read the commentaries, you'll find out most scholars agree that either he didn't know who his daddy was, or they knew who he was, but they didn't want to tell because they were embarrassed. He was that bad. In fact, uh, what it tells us about Jabez, the first thing out of the writer's pen, I guess you would say, is Jabez was more honorable than his brethren. That means that he had some brothers and they weren't so hot either. Everybody knew Jabez's brothers. That's why the writer felt it was important to distinguish between him and the rest of his family. So Jabez was more honorable than his brethren. Uh, his name was Jabez because depending on which translation of his name you read, it, it means he will cause pain. That tells you what his mama thought about it. 
Yeah. Had a little baby boy and said, what am I going to name him? <laughs> Pain. Why? She, she told us why. She said, because I bore him in pain. He hurt. He caused me pain when he was born. I've, I've given birth to a whole bunch of his brothers. They all cause pain. His daddy's no good. And so why should I expect anything different from him? And she names him pain. How would you like to be that child that, through no choice of your own, was born into that family? And nobody believed in you, even your own mama. And you grow up knowing that you're going to cause pain. That's what everybody expects of you. Maybe you're here this morning, my friend, and life has not been kind to you. Through no choice of your own, you were born into a family that wasn't of the best reputation. And you've been saddled with your family's misdeeds. And your teachers didn't believe in you. And your neighbors didn't believe in you. And all the local cops knew you by name. I got news for you, my friend. You can write a different ending to your story. The Bible says that Jabez prayed to the God of Israel. His prayer was simple. Lord, enlarge my borders. God, I've been given a mighty tight space to live in in life. I was born into some bad territory. I was born into a bad situation. I am closed in by my family's reputation. I'm closed in by the misdeeds of my father. But Lord, I refuse to live my life this way. So I'm praying to you, the God of Israel, enlarge my borders. He wanted to say, put your hand on me and don't let me cause pain and the beautiful thing is the Bible says that God heard his prayer and granted him that which he requested. But I want you to notice one very important thing about Jabez's prayer. He did not pray, God, do away with my borders. Take away all my restrictions. Take away all my boundaries. He didn't pray that way. He prayed, God, enlarge my borders. In other words, God, I need more territory in life. I need more space in life. But I also recognize that the thing that gives my territory its power is the boundary that's around it. So, Lord, don't just give me more space in life. There are folks that they pray for blessings. They pray for God to give them financial blessings. They pray for God to move them up to a better car and a better home. But they forget to, to pray for the hand of God to remain on their lives. And they forget to respect the boundaries of the Word of God. And so they're newfound wealth and blessing and prosperity takes them far away from God and they end up worse than they began you don't have to be that way if you're here this morning you need something from God God brought you here because he wants to do a miracle in your life but don't believe or don't think for an instant that God's just going to give you the Holy Ghost and turn you loose so you can walk out the door and do whatever you want no there is a trade-off there is a commitment God if you'll touch me if you'll bless me if you'll break break the curse of my family off of me I'll serve you for the rest of my life I'll obey your word I'll honor your laws if you'll enter into that kind of a relationship with God, there's no stopping you, my friend. You know, the funny thing about the story of Jabez is 
The reason he appeared in that genealogy is that genealogy was a listing of the princes of the tribe of Judah. Somehow, this boy from the wrong side of the tracks didn't even have a daddy. And his brothers were no good and his mama didn't believe in him because he called on the God of Israel. He became a prince of the tribe of Judah. He wasn't born a prince. He didn't belong in that genealogy. But I serve a God who rewrites people's futures. It doesn't matter the mistakes you've made before today, my friend. It doesn't matter what you were doing. It doesn't matter if you were shooting up yesterday or so drunk last night you didn't know your name. You're in the house of the Lord this morning and God wants to reach into your life and rewrite your future. You can walk out of here a prince of God's people. All right, I made it to number three. The lunch special may not be over yet by the time you get there. Number three is the law of gravity. The law of gravity says that everything that goes up must eventually come down. And once again, saint of God, the enemy would like for you to believe that in your relationship with God... You're bound to come back down to earth sometime. That that joy and that peace, that confidence, that victory, that liberty, that those things can't last. And it's just a matter of time until the newness wears off and you go back to being what you were before. The scripture says this, but they that wait... Upon the Lord shall renew their strength, and they shall mount up with wings as eagles. Now, he could have chosen any winged bird for that analogy, but he chose eagles. There's a reason for that. There are uh, a lot of birds who spend most of their time on the ground. Uh, there are some birds who uh, fly, but their flights are short. And then they will perch again, and soon you'll find them hopping around on the ground again because that's where they're most comfortable. Their wings are used for temporary escape, temporary Transition from one place to another. But they stay close to the ground most of the time. Eagles aren't that way. Eagles were born for the skies. An eagle on the ground, if you've ever seen one, is an awkward and clumsy bird. I, uh, I used to work in a place where uh, there was a 40-acre field and a, and a pond and the, uh, the Canadian geese would migrate every year and they would settle in that pond for a while. Uh, one day an eagle showed up, bald eagle. I guess he figured he'd go where the hunting was, was easy. And he spent some time, several weeks, 
hanging around our our office, and he would sit in the in the tree right outside our window, and so we got to watch him quite a bit. And I got to watch him on the ground as well, and and, and he was not a beautiful bird on the ground. He was clumsy and awkward. He wasn't built for the ground. You know, children of God, we uh, we don't fit in on the ground. Folks look at us and we look different, we talk differently, we walk differently, we think differently. If you're used to comparing the gait of an eagle to the gait of a bird that's accustomed to hopping along on the ground, and you'll find those birds are much more graceful than the eagle. But eagles weren't intended to be ground birds. Every time an eagle takes flight, it defies gravity. The law of gravity says that what goes up must come down, and, and there's this pull. The pull from the ground is strong. And every time that eagle soars up to its preferred altitudes, it has to fight the law of gravity. If an eagle stays on the ground, it's going to die. Because the eagles spot their prey from high up in the air. And they'll swoop down, be it, be it a fish in the water or, or an animal on land. They'll swoop down from the sky and grab that animal and they'll take it back up. They don't stay down with it. They'll take it back up and they'll take it to a safe place where they'll then consume it. They spend the bulk of their lives in the sky. Saint of God, God intends for you to spend the bulk of your life soaring. Eagles have to land every now and then. They have to get a little rest every now and then. They have to spend a little bit of time on the ground. But you're not going to find them on the ground by preference. They stay down only as long as they have to. Saint of God, you're going to have some ups and downs in life. There's going to be some times when the law of gravity is going to pull on you. And you have to settle down. But don't get comfortable. It's easy to fall into a slump and we come to church and we don't push ourselves anymore. We come to church and we're not feeling the Holy Ghost and we become okay with that. Well, at least I showed up. Yeah, it wasn't quite the service it could have been, but you know, at least, at least I was there. If you're not careful, the law of gravity is going to get a hold of you. I would watch that eagle... You could see when he'd had enough of the ground. He'd be hopping around, and all of a sudden he'd stop. You could tell he wasn't liking it down here anymore. And his head would go up. You'd see the look come into his eyes, and all of a sudden those wings would start to go out. Now, the eagle is a big bird. He can't just spring up off the ground and take flight. Like a little sparrow does. You know, you come out and startle a sparrow and he'll jump up and fly. Eagles don't do that. They're, they're big and heavy and strong birds. And so the eagle 
has to kind of take off like an airplane, except for it hops along the way. It looks funny when it's trying to take off. It'll take a little hop and stumble along, take another bigger hop and take another, it's flapping those wings. And you'd be looking at it, you'd be laughing at it, saying, that is the ugliest bird I ever saw in my life. That's the most awkward attempt at flight I ever saw in my life. Just like the devil looks at you. When you're trying to break free from the pressure of gravity that's holding you down. There might even be some other believers look at you and say, oh, look at that. But there comes a moment when the power of that six-foot wingspan overcomes the power of gravity that's trying to pull it down. And those wings begin to beat and all of a sudden there's nothing awkward about it. All of the awkwardness is gone and the hopping and the hobbling and the funny jumping is all gone. Why? Because that represented struggle. The bird wasn't doing that just to look funny. It wasn't doing that just because that's all it could do. It was fighting with everything in it to break through the power of gravity. It didn't look good while it was doing it. He didn't look gracious. He didn't look noble while he was trying to push through. Saint of God, forget about how you look. Forget about your dignity. When you're trying to break through, when you're trying to soar like the eagle God intended you to be, you may be awkward for a little while. That's all right. Hang in there. Keep praying. Keep going to the altar. Keep crying those tears. There's going to come a moment when the Holy Ghost is going to get under your wings. And when the eagle takes flight, there's nothing under heaven that can compare with the nobility and the majesty of a soaring eagle. Hang in there. They that wait upon the Lord. You may have suffered great loss in your life. You may have stumbled and fallen and failed God and now you're ashamed of yourself. And that's holding you back because you think that God will never look at you the same. All of those feelings are normal. All of those feelings are natural. But they're not accurate. If you're a child of God baptized in Jesus' name, the scripture says that if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. When you went to that altar and you buried your face in the carpet and you wept, you said, God, I'm sorry. God said, I forgive you. And when you got up, he didn't know what you were talking about anymore. Friend, maybe you're here today and You've never experienced the power of the gospel. God brought you here because he so desperately wants to change your life. The process is not easy, but it's simple. First, he calls you to repent of your sins. That's as simple as telling him you're sorry. Not just telling him you're sorry because... Every drunk does that about midnight on Friday nights when they're trying to stumble home and they've wasted their paycheck. No, it's, it's, it's more than that. It's, it's making a commitment to him, saying, God, I can't change myself. If I could, I would, but I'm asking you for a miracle. 
I'm sorry for having sinned against you, and I'm asking you to change me. And by your grace, I'm committing to you that if you'll give me the power to do so, I will never go back to the life that I was living. That's repentance. Now, the Bible says you need to be baptized in water in the name of Jesus Christ. Why? To have your sins forgiven you. And then there's a beautiful promise, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. That's when the Spirit of God actually comes to live inside of you. It gives you that power that you don't have right now. That's why you worry. Well, what if I start and I can't finish? What if I, if, if, if I quit drugs and alcohol and, and then I go back to it tomorrow because I can't help it? No, you're, you're not figuring in. You're not factoring in the power of the Holy Ghost. Amen. Jesus and ye shall receive power after that the Holy Ghost has come upon you. Those things won't have hold on you anymore. You won't want them anymore. The desire will be gone. Yeah, you may hop a little and hobble a little, stumble a little, but keep on flapping those wings. Keep on flapping those wings. If an eagle loses its ability to fly, its life is essentially over and it will die. My mom went to be with the Lord eight years ago. It was a beautiful thing. She'd soared all her life from the time she was 16 years old. And I'm finishing up. If you'd like to join me, stand if you would. So, Lord, since she was 16 years old, she served on the mission field. She served him in various pastures with my father. She fell ill with leukemia, and uh, it was a very quick process. From the time she was diagnosed, she was given six weeks to live. Uh, I never saw anybody more gracious and confident in the face of death. Her prayer was, of course, that God would heal her and she could return to the mission field and live many more years. She'd already lived a full life of she wanted to work for the Lord some more, but she understood that the Lord wasn't going to grant that request. I've never seen anybody make such a peaceful, confident, and joyful transition to the presence of the Lord as she did. Up until... The day she died, she was sharing the gospel with doctors and nurses. My family and I had been there for, I had been there for a couple of weeks. My family had just driven up. Uh, they lived 14 hours away, driven up to where she was in the hospital and joined her that afternoon. Uh, we walked down the street to get a Starbucks, and, and a phone call came and said, you better get back. Looks like, uh, looks like the time has come. We raced back to the hospital, and by the time we walked in the room, it was over. She was gone. We'd had a little service in her room. It was a Sunday. Had a little service in her room a little bit earlier, and the presence of God had swept in in a beautiful way. And there is, as they tended to her, did whatever they had to do, uh, 
surrounding her passing. A doctor came, knocked on the door as a young female doctor who had gotten very close to her over the last few weeks. And she brushed past us into the room and she said, I'm sorry, I'm sorry to intrude. She said, I just had to feel one more time what I feel here. And she stood there by my mother's bedside and tears ran down her face, this doctor. And she left. You see, death is a beautiful thing when you're an eagle. There will come a point in time where you can't live down here anymore. There will come a point in time where your, your wings don't have the strength they used to. Can't soar like you used to. And merciful God in heaven who knows how eagles think and how eagles work says, I can't leave you on the ground. You're not built for that. And so he takes you higher. Even in death, my friend, the law of gravity has no hold on a child of God. I feel the very sweet presence of the Lord here this morning. Maybe you've been living your life dominated by one of these three laws. Maybe the law of diminishing returns has robbed you of your dignity. It's reduced you to a shell of the man or the woman that you used to be. And now substances are dictating how you spend your money and how you spend your time and taking away your family from you. Undermining your ability to hold a job and make a living. To borrow from an old country song, maybe your problem is you're looking for love in all the wrong places. Because God would like to give you something, my friend, that just gets better with time. It's an old song we used to sing in Sunday school. It says, every day with Jesus is sweeter than the day before. doesn't cost me anymore. No, he gave it to me for free. He paid the price. But there is a way to live where life gets sweeter every day than the day before. Maybe, saint of God, you've been weary and worn down. And the second law of thermodynamics says you're going to burn out pretty soon. It's inevitable. No, no, it's not. No, it's not. You can know that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. And maybe the weight of this world has been dragging you down. The law of gravity says you're going to crash and burn. No. They that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. I'd like to open this altar this morning. I think it would be a grave disservice to you to close out the service without giving you a chance to experience the power of God for yourself.
An altar at a Pentecostal church is like nothing you've ever seen before. Oh, there's nothing magical about the place. But what happens on that altar is an encounter between a human being and his or her creator. It's where you bring all the things that are broken in your life to the one who knows how to fix them. Where you stop pretending that you're big enough to do it yourself and tough enough to do it yourself. And you just throw your heart's doors wide open. You say, God, I need help. I need you this morning. I promise if you'll do that, he'll meet with you here. And you'll experience the power of the Holy Ghost. The power that I've been preaching to you about that will change the course of your life. Let's bow every head. And I'd like to invite you, my friend, if you need to pray this morning, come. There's a church family here that would love to pray with you. Would love to help you to find that place in God. In Jesus' name. In Jesus' name. In Jesus' name. Come on, don't don't hesitate, friend. God's calling you right now.